X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's April 8th, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. And it's not just the time of the coronavirus, it's time of the supermoon. Today on The Local, your quick six headlines, original story by X-Ray's Kate Kay on how the local construction industry is handling COVID-19, and Margaret Morales and Michael Anderson from the Sightline Institute. We'll talk about the politics and policy of direct cash payments to people, like those in the CARES Act, the stimulus bill. Suddenly, Congress recognizes that people know what to do, and in this crisis moment, what they need is cash. First up, it's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith, and it is Tuesday, April 8th. Star voting will premiere statewide in May. The Independent Party of Oregon announced on Tuesday it will use star voting for the May 2020 primary, the first time star voting will be used in a statewide election. How does it work? Voters will score each candidate on a zero to five scale. The winner is the majority favorite between the two highest scoring candidates overall. Star stands for score, then automatic runoff. It hopes to offer superior ease of use and better representational accuracy than ranked choice voting and much better voting dynamics than the current system. Mark Fronmeyer, founder of the Equal Vote Coalition, said star voting eliminates the spoiler effect. It allows voters to honestly express their preferences without fear of wasting their votes. New data tools for the tracking of COVID-19. On Monday, the Oregon Health Authority rolled out a new digital dashboard. Charts the state's cases on a week-by-week basis. Dashboard is produced jointly by the Oregon Health Authority and the Oregon Office of Emergency Management. I'll also still recommend covid19.healthdata.org, the site put together by the University of Washington. In other data news, WalletHub is comparing states to determine who has acted most aggressively against the virus. The state with the most aggressive measures, New York, followed by the District of Columbia, Oregon. Well, according to WalletHub's measures, we're in the middle of the pack. An update on Oregon's data. The Oregon Health Authority has reported 49 new cases and four deaths in the state. That's 1,181 total reported coronavirus cases statewide and a death toll of 33. A houseless services update. Two people experiencing homelessness tested positive for coronavirus yesterday in Multnomah County. They're the first positive cases within the county's homeless population. Nonprofits that provide food for typically homeless people are seeing a big surge in demand. The Oregon Food Bank has requested $7.5 million from the state as part of an emergency package to address COVID-19. Governor's office said the state is ready to help with funding, but has not agreed on specifics. As we reported previously, the governor is waiting to convene the state legislature in special session until after federal resources are clear. Another local example of need, take Blanchett House. Typically, more than three-quarters of the food that Blanchett House serves is donated. But now restaurants are closed or cut back. They aren't able to contribute. Another challenge, Blanchett House must now also package meals instead of serving restaurant style. Combine those things, that means that costs for Blanchett House giving their meals have gone from $0.33 to $5 a meal. So what is Portland doing? A few examples. More motel vouchers have been made available so shelter providers can isolate sick and vulnerable people. 24% of people who are unsheltered or living in emergency shelters are 55 or older, and 25% have a chronic health condition, according to Multnomah County. Portable hand-washing stations and toilets have cropped up across the city, and the county has converted the Oregon Convention Center and two community centers into temporary shelters. 
And Portlanders may see some relief as the Portland City Council recently approved more than a million bucks to fund direct payments to low-income Portlanders through the Bureau of Housing. Direct cash payments are utilized around the world to support economic stability. Stay tuned for Margaret Morales and Michael Anderson from Sightline, who will talk about the effectiveness and some of the political challenges around direct cash payments. On April 1st, Labor Commissioner Val Hoyle announced a temporary rule prohibiting large employers from firing workers who don't show up because of a lack of child care. Hoyle cited the Oregon Family Leave Act in the temporary rule. Employers with over 25 workers must allow up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave per year for workers to care for their minor children who have an illness, injury, or a condition that's not a serious health condition but requires home care. The rule will stay in effect until September 13th, around the start of the next school year. Meanwhile, the Oregon Department of Education is building a system for emergency child care for essential workers across the state. Over 600 private provider applications have been approved, and three school districts have begun providing care. For child care resources and referrals in your area, you can call 211. Candidate for City Council Tara Hurst and City Commissioner Chloe Udaly are testing the limits of the open and accountable election system, the public financing for elections system. Can a candidate using public matching money donate some of that money to local nonprofits? And can they solicit donations promising that they will do so? Tara Hurst is among several candidates who have qualified for public campaign financing. And Hearst sent out an email promising to spend a portion of the public matching funds to local nonprofits like Pacoon, the Oregon Farmworkers Union. But after some questioning and further discussions with the state elections division, Hearst withdrew her plan. Margot Black, another candidate for the same seat, said she had explored a similar idea but had dropped it. City Commissioner Chloe Udaly, running for re-election, has posted a similar pledge. She hasn't withdrawn that pledge. She's listed several nonprofits, and she is citing advice from the Open and Accountable Elections Office. Stay tuned on that one. So what are we going to do on Earth Day? April 22nd is the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. It's just two weeks from today. Street Roots has been checking in on local plans. Prior to the statewide stay-at-home order, 350PDX was in the process of planning a large gathering of tens of thousands to demonstrate on climate. The Sunrise Movement PDX, a youth-led organization, was also planning for an Earth Day strike. Their collective energy and focus are now on mutual aid during the COVID-19 crisis and planning for long-term recovery. 350.org has launched a campaign, hashtag Just Recovery, to focus on economic recovery and people and planet first. And on April 22nd, and on April 22nd, well, there'll still be a gathering. It might still have thousands of people. And where will it be? Online. Well, folks, it's been pretty warm and it's going to be pretty darn warm the next couple of days. Be cool. Portland will hit 70 degrees this week. But don't forget the stay-at-home and social distancing orders. They are still in place. That means you too, runners. Just because you're faster doesn't mean walkers have to get out of your way. Bike Portland reported on crowds of people last weekend on the East Bank Esplanade, Mount Tabor, neighborhood streets in north and northeast Portland. Ninety cars were parked at the Germantown Road trailhead, according to the Forest Park Conservancy. Typical summer day draws only about 50 cars. So while many outdoor areas are closed and playgrounds are off limits, you're still encouraged to exercise, enjoy fresh air. Just keep your distance. Whether you're gardening or going on a socially distanced walk, you can still tune into X-Ray FM while doing any of those things. And do make sure to look up at the night sky. It's going to be the largest full moon of the year. So why is Wednesday's moon going to be the largest, the super moon? Well, it is at perigee syzygy the closest to the Earth during the year. This moon is often called a pink moon, mirroring the pink flowers blooming in spring. Happy perigee syzygy. 
That's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith, and you're listening to The Local. While manufacturing plants and schools have shut down, many construction sites are still open and functioning. Whether builders are complying with rules to prevent the spread of COVID-19 depends on where you look. Portland reporter Kate Kay has the story. On Southwest Washington Street here in Portland, where food carts once lived, passersby can peer down to catch a glimpse of the foundation of the future 35-story Ritz-Carlton Hotel. It's not exactly business as usual on this construction site, though. Workers there said the number of people working at any given time on the site is limited because social distancing rules require they work six feet apart from one another. They said to prevent the spread of COVID-19, the bathroom, stair towers, ladders, and other equipment at the site are cleaned two to four times a day. But not everybody is satisfied with the state of construction worker safety amid the pandemic. Complaints related to the coronavirus started flowing into the Oregon Occupational Safety and Health Administration around the beginning of March, and they're rolling in at a steady pace. As of Tuesday morning, people had lodged more than 2,200 coronavirus-related complaints about all types of businesses throughout the state. According to Oregon OSHA's recent analysis, there were around 1,200-some complaints made the week ending March 29th. 99 of those were related to the construction and landscaping industries. About 8% were seen come from construction, so that's relatively low. Aaron Corvin, Oregon OSHA's public information officer, said many of those construction-related complaints alleged a lack of social distancing. Anything that we would do with respect to complaints in terms of potentially citing, uh, issuing citations, that's really going to be uh, dependent on the facts on the ground. So it it would be a kind of a site-specific evaluation, and the question would be whether the employer's attempts um, at getting a handle on on these things uh, are credible. At the Portland Airport offices of multinational construction firm Skanska, a printout posted at the entrance lists COVID-19 distancing rules for several subcontracting firms working on an expansion of the e-concourse. Their 200 total employees must work six feet apart, and the notice says... There's a zero-tolerance policy for illness on site. But social distancing just might not be possible at every construction site. At a PDX airport project run by general contractor J.E. Dunn last week, men worked in cramped confines, maneuvering around one another in a work area barely wide enough for two people. J.E. Dunn did not respond to a request to comment for this story. Like here in Portland, building trades are still humming across most of the U.S., except in a few places. In Washington, Governor Jay Inslee has shut down residential, commercial, and most transportation department construction until at least April 6th. And in New York, the state hardest hit so far by the pandemic, most construction work except for building for hospitals, infrastructure, affordable housing, and emergency repair projects has been deemed non-essential. Michigan has halted some construction work. And in Austin, Texas, that other keep-it-weird city, many construction jobs that don't involve public works, affordable housing, and critical infrastructure are at a standstill. For now, though, there does not appear to be a plan to stop construction work here in Portland. 
When asked whether Mayor Ted Wheeler is considering restrictions on construction here, a spokesperson told X-Ray, quote, If our public health experts identify construction as a particular risk to public health during the COVID-19 pandemic, we will work with our partners at the state to take action, unquote. The Oregon Health Authority will determine if additional business closures are necessary to slow the spread of COVID-19 during the state of emergency. But Oregon Governor Kate Brown's office told X-Ray right now specifically shutting down construction is not one of their recommendations. Some of those working construction here say they want to stay on the job. One construction worker who asked not to be named said he was fortunate to still be allowed to work. What if construction becomes a non-essential job right now? It'd be unfortunate for a lot of people. I mean, we got families to feed. That's the, somebody's got to keep the money flowing in this economy. But he said he had a feeling construction work will be stopped sooner or later in response to the pandemic. For X-Ray.fm. I'm Kate Kay. Next up, an interview with Margaret Morales and Michael Anderson from the local think tank, the Sightline Institute. Margaret and Michael have recently published a three-part series on the moral imperative and economic impact of direct cash payments, not just paying for programs, but giving money directly to people. Let's start, Margaret, let's start with you. Why don't we use cash payment benefits more often? You know, I think cash payment um, programs represent a pretty big shift in how we think about social safety nets in the United States. Um, Here we have programs that are directed at specific needs. So like we have SNAP, um, which was formerly called food stamps, and that's to help people cover food expenses. Or we have Section 8 to help people cover housing. Um, So we think in these in a way, those programs are, are like broad brushstrokes. We think if we give people money to help with a specific need, it would cover that need. And we don't think about um, giving people kind of cash, which would allow them to be more flexible. There, Well, there are basically two um, main op- like thoughts of opposition to cash payments in the United States and more broadly to this idea. Um, So one is that people will get lazy and they'll stop working. Um, And the other is that when you give people cash, it will increase consumption of um, things that can be damaging to health. So increase alcohol or tobacco use or make people more likely to buy lottery tickets, things like this. Michael, give examples of those critiques. Are they basically saying, oh, these lazy jerks won't do anything and all they'll do is go buy cigarettes and Coke? Yeah, I mean, that's basically it. And one way I like to think about it, uh, the way, in at least my sense of the response, is with the CARES Act, we've got this example. It's the, the largest temporary expansion of, like, cash-based social insurance in U.S. history, uh, this massive infusion of the unemployment uh, benefit, and then these stimulus checks that are going to arrive eventually. And uh, imagine if, instead of doing that, the government had said, well, okay, you get $300 a month for your housing, and you get $200 a month for food, and this much for electricity, and so on. The entire country would have been amazingly pissed off. They would have been uh, outraged that the government is making these decisions. Then their landlord would have been like, well, I know exactly how much money you've got to spend on housing, and so that's exactly what I'm going to charge, whether or not this is like the optimal level of rent for this situation. Uh, 
we would go crazy for that. The problem is that that's exactly what we do to poor people every day, all the time. We're micromanaging their decisions, even though they know, obviously, this is the best thing for me right now, this is the best thing for me uh, this other day. So uh, I think the, the key response, as Margaret puts it, is uh, you need to be able to have this really fine-tuned, careful, customized response to poverty in your own life when you're experiencing poverty, and cash lets you do that in a way that food stamps and Section 8 vouchers and so on just cannot do. So, Margaret, you make the case for cash payments or even the counter to the counter argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we have a number of um, case studies from around the world. They're kind of natural experiments in what people do when they get uh, cash payments, so um, cash benefits. And there is a tremendous amount of evidence that neither of those concerns um, actually happen. Um, so, you know, the first concern that people will, will stop working. Um, it turns out that when people get cash payments, they overwhelmingly use them on things that increase their financial stability or the stability of their children. Um, so you see people pursuing more education or you see the children of people who get the cash payments getting more education. Um, there's a really good study from the Eastern Band of Cherokee Nations um, in rural North Carolina where people get cash payments. It's from the casino revenue of the tribe. Um, and those children stay in school longer than uh, children in households in the same area who aren't getting the payments. Um, and you see people pursuing more entrepreneurship. Um, so there's a great case study from Kenya where households um, would purchase things that could help them, like a, an extra um, animal or things that could allow them to participate more in the marketplace. And as far as the concerns about um, you know, health, will this be damaging to people's health? There's also a number of studies that show actually the opposite. So. Um, we have the Alaska Permanent Dividend Fund, uh, where permanent res- um, residents of Alaska receive an annual payment um, based on the state's oil revenue. And we've seen a really strong correlation with increases in infant birth weight, which um, you know it's associated with a number of positive outcomes for um, health, long-term health for children. Um, so that shows that you know women are able to have healthier pregnancies. Um, there is also really strong correlation with that and decrease in childhood obesity. Um, so instead of purchasing less healthful foods, it seems that households are able mm-hmm. to access you know, more, health, more healthy foods. Um, and that has benefits not just for you know, the personal health of that child, but reduce medical costs, um, which is good for the health system, good for household finances. One study thought the reduction in childhood obesity um, was possibly saving about $10 million a year in medical costs um, across Alaska. So we actually see greater financial stability and um, better health, health outcomes. There are some studies that show when people get the um, cash benefits in large lump sums, like say once a year, uh, there'll be a short-term spike in consu- um, purchases that can lead to more dangerous health outcomes or accidental deaths. So uh, that study from rural North Carolina and the Eastern Cherokee Indian tribes 
um, there was like a spike in purchasing things like motorcycles, especially for um, tribe members who, when they come of age at 18, they get a large check. So they would often go out, these researchers found, and buy like motorcycles, um, and there would be more accidents. Uh, So giving the money in large lump sums is sometimes associated with negative health health outcomes. So there's a good argument for um, making the payments more consistent in smaller portions throughout the year. But again, those two big arguments against cash payments, they really don't bear out with any studies we see uh, worldwide and even here in the United States. Michael, anything to add about why cash payments might be superior to other kinds of government benefits? I think the one benefit that I'm looking into now for our next article is about the transparency and simplicity of pushing it out. One terrible thing you get sometimes when you stack a bunch of different uh, important and well-intentioned programs on top of each other is you'll get a situation where if somebody makes a little bit more money, they actually lose their benefits uh, of one sort or another. So uh, I was talking to a woman who had been involved in some focus groups with folks who were on Medicaid, and a lot of people, it's very complicated to figure out like exactly what you're going to make, especially if you aren't working like a normal 40-hour payroll job. And so people will just stay well clear deliberately of the line where they think they're going to lose their Medicaid benefits if they are uh, at risk of doing so. And uh, and that's obviously not good. You want people to always have, uh, a, you know, a hunger to get that uh, uh, the next hour of work and improve everybody's lives that way. Um, the uh, You don't want people to be forced to choose between a little bit more cash and a little bit more health coverage. Uh, so... What, one thing that a cash benefit program could do is maybe not in the case of Medicaid specifically, but in the case of food stamps and other programs that have a phase out is you could have a more gentle slope where you don't have the sort of cliffs in benefits as you make more money that would give you the uh, perverse decision between the two. You can structure it in such a way that every dollar actually is a raise. Margaret, do we know anything about the root of those arguments, the origin of the arguments that say, oh, the undeserving poor will do dumb stuff, be irresponsible, and only cause themselves more harm if you give them money? Do we know how those arguments got cracking? Well, I think it comes down to your core beliefs in people. So um, do you believe that people are scofflaws and just um, when they have the opportunity going to you know, sit back and um, you know, maybe make poor decisions, or do you have trust in people that um, people are smart, they are the experts in their own lives, they are nimble, they can adapt, and they want to do that. And those kind of core um, beliefs about people, I think it really crosses the um, whatever political divides or party divides we have. Uh, Those are just basic questions about how we uh, understand society. And I think the best way to answer those questions is to look at the the research that we have. How do people actually act with the money? Um, So, you know, I can't change people's core beliefs, but I think there's a lot of good research to show the latter, that that trusting people to make the best decisions and the very um, minute decisions for, you know, the millions of specific instances that people actually deal with in their own lives. I think there's a lot of good research that people know what's best for them. Michael, anything you want to add about why it is that so many of us think that people suck and that they can't be trusted with money? I mean, I think there's uh, a natural 
desire to see one's tax dollars go to the best thing. Uh, it's just, I, I really like a, an analogy Margaret made when we were writing the series is that the it feels like food stamps are really targeted. And you're like, food, nutrition is important. Let's target that money. But the truth is, it's not targeted. It's like a big mallet you're smacking at this problem, assuming that that's what everybody needs in that amount. And the truth is that if you really, like a targeted benefit is somebody who has much more information than the public when they're voting on some big uh, one-use program. That The target targeting is best accomplished by the individual choosing, I need to get my car fixed because that's what it's going to keep me in this job that I really need to keep my kids in school or whatever. Margaret, um, Margaret, do we see attitudes changing? Well, I think that uh, the CARES Act, so the, the stimulus package that uh, the president signed, was it just last week, the $2 trillion package? I have no sense of time um, any longer. I have no idea what day it is. <laughs> I don't know when that was. I think it's we're in the 2020s now, but go on. Right. Within the last few days to respond to the coronavirus pandemic, um, it shows that when there is this crisis moment there, um, people, people understand uh, that that every household in America is facing some some sort of crisis. And the people who have lost jobs, you know, just seen their work evaporate Mm. over the last four weeks that those households are really in crisis. And so it's amazing to me to see the kind of about face um, of our uh, senators and, and representatives to understanding cash payments are the quickest way to support these households, um, to really help people who are on the front lines of fighting this virus by, you know, taking the real, like the frontline suffering is losing your work fi- financially. There's obviously people suffering the health consequences as well. But that about face of suddenly Congress recognizes that people know what to do. And in this crisis moment, what they need is cash. Um, so I think that is sort of a vote of confidence in in people. And this crisis is kind of bringing that out. And I, I think there maybe is an opportunity for that thinking to carry forward. Certainly the public survey has shown that there's an increased amount of support for cash payments, at least at the moment. Michael Anderson, Margaret Morales of Sightline, thank you so much for joining us. Where where can people find out more? Uh, You can go to sightline.org and see our research and um, a lot of the other research Sightline does on housing, um, uh, housing stability. Sightline Institute, a huge asset to our region and to the conversation generally. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to Kate, to Margaret, to Michael, for the whole team for joining The Local. Thank you for listening. The Local is your hometown in about 30 minutes. If you find it useful, please do share it with somebody. Post it somewhere, recommend it to a friend. We're spending so much time making this show, we don't have a whole lot of time to promote it. We do think it's valuable to have a local podcast every day focused on local news. We're not just a wash only in national news. Thanks for listening. Stay home, stay connected, and thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow.